unmissable stories from around the globe. From the BBC World Service. My happy place, this is who I am. <laughs> Search for the documentary, Lives Less Ordinary, and amazing sports stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hello, I'm Audrey Brown, and today in Focus on Africa, meet the lawyer taking up the cause of people facing harsh sentences for religious offences in northern Nigeria. People need to have their day in court if they've been alleged to have done something. We're not in the Middle Ages anymore, where people are not allowed to read the Bible, and if you read it, you're charged for blasphemy or heresy, or where people should be stoned to death. A journalist targeted by online bullies shares his experiences. It was really traumatizing when I see those kind of defamatory, libelous issues being banded around <laughs> against me. It was really painful. And a South African campaigner tells us how to recognize a potential cyber bully. Most bullies hide under fake accounts. So there's no picture, there's no name attached to it. Sometimes people do that so that they can be malicious online. It's Friday the 16th of February. First we go to Nigeria. Africa has several oil and gas producing countries. Nigeria is one of the biggest, not just on the continent, but in the world. And yet it is unable to produce enough power to light the lives of the hundreds of millions of Nigerians who rely on it. Jamila Hamisu Mai Iali has been telling us that things have been getting worse in recent months. In Nigeria, in the northern part, most especially Kano, for the past months, the power supply has tremendously um, decreased. We hardly have an hour of power supply. So we had to like um, look for alternative is either using the solar system or using your generator. Out of the 24 hours, you get a light, uh, you get a power supply of like 30 minutes, which is very bad. And you need to warm up water to take your bath and you have a lot of children to take care of. But even if you have the solar, which it really like supports you, sometimes it cannot take your water heater, then you have to use your gas. So it's making life more expensive, if I may say, very, very more expensive. A lack of energy or inconsistent supplies affects big and small businesses. Sulayat Adeleye says her business is really suffering. I'm a small business operator in Nigeria. So my business is a mini business cafe where we offer cafe um, business graphics, simple business branding services. We do typing, documentation, printing. And most times, maybe at the time you're at work, the power is off or when the job comes in, that's when you don't have electricity. Or you can even be in the middle of, the, of a job, then the power goes off. And because it's just where people come to make a copy of a document or two and all that, no matter the quantity, you definitely need power to do the job. So it has really been a struggle. And with the hiking fuel, it became more more troubling because it becomes so so frustrating for small business owners. But how did it come to this? And why can't it be fixed? Dr. Sam Amadi is a former executive chairman of the Nigerian Electricity Regulatory Commission. 
we began by discussing why the electricity grid in Nigeria keeps collapsing. First, we did not plan and invest as the country was growing in urban city, population, middle class, people are buying more equipment. So the same number of power couldn't go around. Two, we did not invest in improving the dead infrastructure. So some of the lines, network, uh, that is, they're dead, they're supposed to be replaced. Government did not do that quickly. So today you have the system is weak, so they can't even carry power. Sometimes there'll be total darkness because somewhere shut down and broke, something broke somewhere, and it, it affects all the the country. I'm surprised that Nigeria has survived this long, you know, and governments have been able to contain people's discontent about electricity. I'm from South Africa, and we are having mm-hmm. electricity challenges as well. The levels sure. of frustration are incredibly high. So so how have governments been able to get away with this? Because today we're talking about this because people are angry and, you know, trying to survive without electricity, adequate electricity. How have governments got away with this? I think largely because many Nigerians like to be self-reliant, even, I mean, which is negative and positive. So people sometimes don't, think about government as owing them obligations, as, as we see in maybe some other countries where it's based on taxation. You pay money, you say, government is not giving services. In Nigeria, individuals have what you call, I pass my neighbor, small generators. You see some uh, low-cost housing where people live opposite each other, one room. Each of them have their low-tech uh, low, low generator fuel generator that put on you know noise everywhere pollution it's been lagos area and so they are pro- pro- providing power for themselves today as petroleum price has increased some of these families are not able to do that so they started coping setting up their own small small generators buying plants fueling them and then then communities can help themselves and that's why also some about doing solar so over time nigerians have kind of coped or not demanded much from government. And that's why in 1999, they started the, the reform. There was hope. And now people are saying, okay, in the next two years, maybe things will improve. And then now that it looks like after since 2013, after they have privatized with all the message, it's not working. Exactly, yeah. because right now we're talking because the national grid keeps collapsing. Why does it keep collapsing? Why did the the, the privatization initiative not succeed? Three reasons. One is that first, some of us, when I was regulator there, I also argued that it was rushed, that maybe, and we had to meet with ESCOM, South Africa is still under public ownership. We felt that you need to build the corporate structure, the investment, the institution before you privatize. And so, because the private owners are not going to make those investments except it's profitable. So, Nigeria, in my view, maybe privatize without first reforming and putting into structure. The second issue is that after privatization, the assumption was that the investors will come with so much money and they'll make those investments quick, they will change the debt network, improve it, and then improve power supply quickly, then people can pay more and enjoy more. But the, all those who bought the assets were either more concerned with making their own money first. So they didn't have the money to make the investment, they are still expecting tariff to go up, prices to go up, so they can make enough money to invest. So that's another reason. So low investment. Government has to step in 
and seeing that, look, the promise that private sector will come with so much money has not been delivered. They are now seeing that shortfall. And I think the third reason is because the owners who bought the assets, in their view, came in, didn't do, because they rushed it, they didn't do enough diligence. So they are saying the rot is bigger than we thought about. So our business plan needs significant revision. We've been t- talking to people in Nigeria, and they say now, a lot mm. of them, they use a mix of solar and power from mm. the national grid. Mm-hmm. So, mm. and, and of course, we all know the ubiquitous sound of the small generators. So people have been trying to take pressure off the national grid because they have no option, right? They've been forced to do this. And yet, sure. there, is still sh- there are still shortages. The problem seems to be perennial. What is the solution? Mm-hmm. Solution is to have multiple grids, national grid, off-grid, people, small communities, use solar or use other renewable energy, wind farm, and build their own power. So that's the, the way. So there will be use of both national grid, state grid, and off-grid over some time before the national grid maybe becomes strong enough and uh, stable with investments required to support regular supply. Now, I know in South Africa, I refer to it because it's something that I know, there is also um, a complaint that many people don't pay for electricity. Um, Is that the case in Nigeria? It's the case in Nigeria. In fact, maybe it could even be worse for two reasons. If you look at Nigeria, uh, they are owing the the federal government subsidy to the generation companies about 1.3 trillion naira. For the gas suppliers, about $1.3 billion. So what does that mean? It means that the three things, one, the price is not good enough to cover the cost. Two, even when they sell power to consumers, homes and businesses, issue them bill, they don't pay bill. Energy theft is also a component. Some people go and connive with staff of the companies, change their, uh, their meter or cut off their power and put it um, over, override the meter so that the, what they're consuming is not registered. So there are many ways the companies are losing money. So yes, just like in South Africa, even maybe more, uh, there's uh, no payment of, of bills and theft of power, yeah. illegal connections and other things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and campaigns in South Africa don't seem to help because in many instances people just don't have money um, or mm-hmm. they feel that they're entitled to the power because it's an expensive it's and it's government. It's expensive and it's government. Yeah. So in Nigeria, yeah. at least you had a subsidy, yeah. but the subsidy, the fuel subsidy, has now been removed. Mm-hmm. What impact has that had? The removal of the subsidy has increased the cost of power because many of the companies, the distribution companies, are using fuel for vehicle logistics. In fact, some of them use generators when they are their power is not available. So it has also increased the cost of power and tariff. Again, if you look at the people who are paying the power, the, the household, the consumers themselves, families, they are paying more moving from place to place. It has increased food inflation. Nigeria is about now, they say it's about 28.92% inflation. That means it's more expensive to buy everything in Nigeria. So what that means is that they even have less money to buy, pay for Nepal. And when it's not available, they have less money to buy fuel to pay for their own individual small, small generator. So you see more families in darkness, 
with the heat now too much. Nigeria is now having a heat wave. So it means that people are suffering a lot because they can't even go to the filling station and buy fuel to put their own fuel generator it's in the absence of the, the grid, the power from the national grid. And when they give them bill, which is oftentimes estimated and exorbitant bill, they don't have money to pay because everybody is now paying more for everything that they used to pay before, including transport, groceries, food stuff, basic things like rice, gare, all those things are now expensive. So it, it has impact on the ability to even pay for Nepal bill. And when they don't pay, they cut them off and throw them in darkness. And when there's no light, they don't have the money to buy fuel to power their own private small generators. That's Dr. Sam Amadi, a former executive chairman of the Nigerian Electricity Regulatory Commission. We've been talking about the Africa Cup of Nations a lot lately, mostly because the tournament was very well run, wonderfully entertaining and genuinely thrilling. But what we're about to discuss is something that slimed the aftermath of the tournament. It's cyberbullying. The Nigerian midfielder Alex Iwobi found himself on the receiving end of online hate and harassment after the Super Eagles lost in the final match against Ivory Coast. The attacks on social media were so bad that Iwobi had to delete pictures from his Instagram account. No matter who you are in society, cyberbullying is damaging. It had far-reaching effects for the journalist Jafar Jafar, who once exposed the bribery case through his online publication and paid a hefty price for it. This is his story. It was in 2018 that we published a series of videos showing one of the powerful Nigerian governors stealing public funds, uh, receiving bribe from contractor as a kickback in hard currency in dollars. So as a journalist, when we certified the authenticity of the videos, went to press and published the videos. But after publishing the videos, they hired an army of social media warriors to start intimidating, harassing, and threatening me. They came with all sorts of narratives that uh, I was a blackmailer. They ridiculed the work, cast doubt on the authenticity of the clips, and all sorts to traumatize and, you know, ridicule the whole work. Uh, it was so profound, work was profound. When you say they, who do you mean? That is the army of social media warriors that they employed to bully, you know. But who employed the army? Powerful Nigerian politician who was involved in the collection of the kickback in the videos. Right. What are the mechanisms used to activate the people? I think in Nigeria, I can say that even there's some, you know, jobless youth who are ready, ever ready to be given a little money and they will just come onto social media and all that and they will just started defending the governor and attacking the journalists who publish the report. Yeah. So it's not just about the defense, it's actually they go on the attack. They attack and defend the governor. They will not bring issues while defending the governor. No. They will see all manner of things, all sort of things that will demonize the journalists. And in my case, that would demonize me with all manner of lies, all manner of, you know, rubbish. 
So to the extent that I, I, I will start feeling so much pain, so much, um, you know, mental trauma. Yeah. While many of many people may not believe what they were saying, at least there may be a segment of the public that may believe or that may take what they say hook, line and sinker. I mean, it's nearly five years later and I can still hear the disbelief in your voice that this actually happened. And also yeah. the constriction in your throat that you must be feeling as you remember these attacks. Yeah. If you yeah. can stand it, can you tell us yeah. some of the things that they said about you? I mean, if you if it's too difficult to recall, you don't have to. The most painful part, you know, as a Muslim, is for them to say that I was not a practicing Muslim. I've, I've been a practicing Muslim. I'm devoted to my religion. But as a Muslim, you are a devoted Muslim. If someone level that tag of being non-practicing Muslim, you know, is weighty. And some of them were even all sort of things about my family. Some were saying that my ex-wife took me to court and all that, all sort of things. Right. Which did not happen. Yeah. It was really traumatizing when I see those kind of, you know, defamatory, libelous issues being banded around <laughs> against me. It was really painful. I can imagine. So the threats didn't stay online for you, right? It actually migrated yes. into real life. Yes. yes. With physical threats. threats. Mm. Yes. When the threats become overbearing, I stayed in Nigeria after publishing the videos. I remained in the country, surmounted. I was only being circumspect about my movements, my actions, and what I view. But when the threats become so glaring and naked, such that, you know, state actors, the police, were involved in the harassment and persecution, then I had no option but to just uh, flee the country and seek asylum in the UK. Are there ways in which you could have approached the law, you know, to go to the police to say, I'm being bullied, I'm being cyberbullied, I'm being threatened? Even if you do that, police will not listen to you. The laws are weak, really. Even some of the bullies that were bullying me at the time, some of them were commissioners in the government, some of them were local government chairmen. No matter how your right is impinged on or open, you cannot drag a local government chairman or a commissioner in, in a state. Did you receive any therapy, treatment, counselling when you got to the UK? No, I, I did not really. I did not. Are you still affected by it now, do you think? I could hear from your voice maybe. that you may well be. Yeah, maybe. Maybe when I when I recall. But you know, time heals. For my mental well-being, sometimes uh, I don't even look back. Because if I, if I decide to, you know, maybe take them to court for doing this, for doing that. I'm bringing the memories, the you know, the bitter memories of, of that moment when they harassed and bullied me. So I don't want the memories to be, to be coming back. Yeah. It was a dreaded moment. That's the journalist Jafar Jafar. So if the problem is cyberbullying, what's the solution? Polly Sihwala manages an online safety and anti-bullying campaign in South Africa. It's called Ilizwe Lam, a Zulu phrase meaning my world. 
The campaign is aimed at teenagers between 13 and 18, giving them the skills to navigate the online space safely. I think it's something we can all learn about. So I asked Polly to explain what cyberbullying actually is. Bullying is basically when um, you do something to someone that means them harm. So if you are going to say something that is meant to intentionally hurt the next person, that is cyberbullying. When you're harassing somebody online, saying threatening things, speaking foul language towards them, that is also considered bullying. Another thing that we can look at is we, we've got this AI now and, you know, people stealing people's social media profiles. That is also bullying in some sort. So essentially, if you're going to summarize what cyberbullying is, is it is the intention to do harm to the next person on a digital platform that is what cyberbullying is and what is the profile of a cyber bully who is that person top of mind when you have an anonymous account so most bullies hide under fake accounts so where you see a profile where there's no picture there's no name attached to it sometimes people do that so that they can be malicious online and you can't trace it back to anyone i think also when you view a person's profile and you can see the content that they create is content that's distasteful there can also be other traits you do not accept someone that doesn't have a verified account, an account with a name or a picture to it, because you don't know who that is and you don't know what their intentions are. It seems by all accounts that uh, cyberbullying is getting worse. Why do you think that's the case? The internet is a, is a different, it's, it's another world of its own. And if you go onto it without getting your intentions right, it's a problem. You can hide yourself online. You can be faceless online. I think that's one of the biggest problems that we have. If you are going to go onto an online platform and you cannot be traced back, what would stop you from doing bad? You know what I mean? I think that's one of the biggest problems that we have. And this is why when we facilitate our workshops, we always try to show the good and the bad side, the bad side of the internet. I mean, the internet provides opportunities, but it can also equally destroy you. So do anti-cyberbullying campaigns work? Can you see the, the, you know, the fruits of your labor? Uh, does it um, keep people safe? Does it help stop cyberbullying? Or does it just help um, us cope with it? <laughs> I believe they work to some extent. With the work that we do um, as Digify and the Elizolam program, with the response that we get from the communities and them wanting more sessions, it kind of seems like we are getting the message across. Also because with the program that we run, it's interactive. You get to hear from the victims. You get to hear from young people what they do online and you're able to help them navigate it. So let's talk very quickly in three short steps. What would you say needs to be done to promote digital etiquette? I highly encourage educational campaigns, educational campaigns by these big organizations, brands, schools. I also encourage workshops and training sessions around the topic at hand. Also, lastly, parental and school involvement also helps. You know, if we can have these conversations with our kids, start them young, they can grow to being good digital citizens. And that's what we want at the end of the day. Thanks to Jafar Jafar, now in exile in the UK because of cyberbullying, and Polly Sikwala in South Africa, who runs a campaign to teach teenagers how to be safe online.
Who were the Black 14? 14 football players who were at the University of Wyoming in 1969. 14 student athletes who paid a heavy price for planning a show of support against racism. It hit the campus like wildfire. Some of them was getting death threats. Amazing sports stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. It was a complete surprise that he kicked us off the team. What are we going to do with our lives? How are we going to get our degrees? Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now I want you to meet Kola Alapini, a lawyer who has made it his life's work to defend people facing harsh sentences or the death penalty. He is from Nigeria and he defends people in the north of the country where Islamic law or Sharia can impose the death penalty for offences like blasphemy or adultery. He receives threats to his life for his efforts in Nigeria, but there's also been recognition for his work in the form of an award he jokingly calls the Nobel Peace Prize for Human Rights Defenders from the United States. The award was for international religious freedom. I suppose it's a pat on the back. We must have done something right, uh, the legal team, I mean in some of the challenges of the Sharia law or some of the judgments of the Sharia courts which uh, came out of northern Nigeria, especially in Kano. Suppose it's some sort of validation, uh, you know, for what we've done. You described it very vividly when we spoke earlier. You said the award is... Yeah, I, I said it's um, probably could be likened to the Nobel Prize of the international human rights law field, especially the international religious freedom um, part of it. So what did you get it for? Was it a specific case? Well, they narrowed down on two specific cases, which the BBC had reported widely when it first happened in 2020. The first case was uh, for Omar Farouk Bashir. He was a minor who was sentenced to 10 years imprisonment. We got he was just sentence. 13, oh, right? Well, uh, initially we thought he was 13. That was what was in the international media. But by the time we got him out of prison, he confirmed he was 17. But the news out there was that he was 13. So that was one of the reasons that we were spurred into action. We couldn't sleep at night when we heard that. He was still a child nonetheless, even though he was 17. He was a minor. Exactly. That was why the court discharged and acquitted him. He shouldn't even have been in court in the first place. And what was he on death row for? No, he wasn't on death row. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Oh, so for 10 for years. Blasphemy. What was the other case? The other case was the case of a gentleman known as Yaya Sharif Amino, also known as the Kano musician. He was sentenced to death. And that was the first case which we heard about and we sprung into action. I went into Kano on the decoy and blended in. We filed the appeal just in the nick of time. It was filed on the 3rd of September 2020 and the window will have run out on the 9th of September. It was whilst filing for Yaya Amini Sharif's appeal that we discovered that the court actually sentenced two of them, that the, the other person being Omar Farouk. We had to return on the 7th of September, just two days before the deadline, and um, I was able to successfully file that appeal as well. So the, the Secretary of State and um, the State Department narrowed down on those two cases. Why was Yaya Sharif sentenced to death? It was for blasphemy as well. Blasphemy, you know, He right. was said to have said some things, um, sang a song and some lyrics in a close to WhatsApp group, and then they squealed her name, reported him to the Islamic police. Um, a mob descended on his home and destroyed it completely. And the family ran Elta Skelter. He was arrested and um, you know, put in jail. This was just before the COVID lockdown. 
So all through the lockdown, they were in prison without any trial and without any lawyer to be able to represent them, even though the judge kept on asking for lawyers to come forward, but nobody dared to do so in northern Nigeria for fear of reprisal attacks or, you know, they could, you know. So what made you decide to come forward and defend these people when other lawyers didn't want to be out of fear of their lives? Well, we don't live in Kano to start with. So probably we were stupid enough not to realize the inherent danger. Number two, well, we don't think that the young man deserved to die, especially without legal representation. He needs to have his day in court. We also believe in the constitution of the Federal Republic of Nigeria and uh, there is freedom of religion, freedom not to have a religion, freedom to change your religion. There's freedom of speech. There is also a part of the constitution, section 10, which we won at the Court of Appeal, recognition for because the first court of appeal that's the appellate division of the Kano State High Court said oh section 10 is not important it's not justiciable I'm saying oh no it is justiciable and this is fundamental so we went to the second highest court in Nigeria the court of appeal and it was upheld that this was very important and no state government or federal government can adopt a religion and we are saying that the Sharia law imposition, especially the brand being practiced in Kano State and in northern Nigeria, is an adoption of state religion. So we want that recognition. So it's, it was very important for us to to defend him. And this is now, we've further gone and appealed to the Supreme Court of Nigeria now for a definitive answer. It does take a special kind of person, though, to do this. It's not just about the dry bones of the law. So many other lawyers, and I would say that all lawyers, believe in the constitution of Nigeria. But why was it important for you more than the spirit and the letter of the law. It goes beyond that, doesn't it? Exactly. And that's the reason why we should step forward. We cannot be cowed into silence. And um, life itself is a risk. Every day is not certain. And if you live your life in fear, you're not going to accomplish anything. We're not going to be cowed in silence. People need to have their day in court if they've been alleged to have done something. We're not in the Middle Ages anymore, where people are not allowed to read the Bible, and if you read it, you're charged for blasphemy or heresy, or where people should be stoned to death. These are contained in the penal code and laws of northern Nigeria, especially Kano State. If you steal, they're going to chop off your hand. If a woman commits adultery, in quotes, you'll be stoned to death. Uh, whereas the man is not charged to court, that is discrimination. It's a violation of the Section 34 of the Constitution of Nigeria, the right to dignity. We can't just stand aside and allow this to go on. And what we are asking the Supreme Court of Nigeria is Nigeria has signed up to international treaties. We have obligations under international law. We don't say that you cannot practice Islamic law. The constitution limits the practice of Islamic law to Islamic personal law, which talks about inheritance, marriages, and everything. But these criminal aspects of the uh, Islamic law, the Sharia law, were smuggled in post-1999 when we returned to civilian rule. And it has to go away. It is inconsistent with our constitution. At what cost did you defend the people that you defended in northern Nigeria? Were you personally menaced because of the work you did or the work you do? Yeah, we sometimes get threats online. We call them love letters. It doesn't bother us. And we take our risk assessment very seriously. I still live in Nigeria. Do I travel often? I just happen to be in the U.S. right now. I have family here. But um we try to be discreet. We are not in your face. If we have to go to court, we go under heavy escorts and the courtrooms are protected. Does it ever scare you? Does it ever make you think twice, the fact that your nah. life can be in danger? No, as I said, it's occupational as that. Um, a doctor goes into the, into the theatre, he, he could pick up something. 
you know, an engineer goes to the site, the, the building could fall down. It is what it is. Yeah, but the thing is, though, so many people don't choose the hazardous path. You have. Well, I'm not a hero. It's just happened to be my line of work. As I said, it's occupational hazard. You don't worry about the risks. The security of lives and property is the ultimate responsibility of the government, and in this case, the Nigerian government. But even the Nigerian government's security is in the hands of God. So you you just do what you have to do and stop worrying about all the risks. I suppose the people who are charged for blasphemy are at much risk than I am. Uh, Deborah Samuel Yakubu was burned to death in, in Sokoto State and stoned by our classmates, classmates from the College of Education who were supposed to be, you know, the, our future teachers. And we've had so many people who have lost their lives in northern Nigeria to these scores in the days. And it's about time the Nigerian government takes this seriously. And that is why, in our own way, we choose to challenge this through the due process of the law. Jungle justice must come to an end. Kola Alapini was talking to me from the U.S. Bella Hassan, Sunita Nahar, and Stefania Okereke were the hands on deck. Umaima Abdul Mumin from the Hausa Service also contributed to this program. Patricia Whitehorn made it all happen. Charles Kitonga was on it in Nairobi. Technical producer Craig Kingham made sure we arrive in your feed and on air on time. The editors are Alice Muthengi and Andre Lombard. I'm Audrey Brown, and we'll talk again next time. Mm-hmm.